We are down to our final three messages in the book of Colossians. For the last few weeks, we have been making much of Christian relationships as we look at these final 11 verses in the book. Yet one of the most important aspects of our human relationships is that they are not an end in and of themselves. Our human relationships are a means to an end. For many people in this world, their relationships with other people are primary. And so who they are is dependent upon who their friends are. Their self-worth is defined by their perceived worth within a relationship. But our human relationships are not primary. They are secondary. By the Lord's design, human relationships, the ones that we have with one another, they are not meant to supplant our relationship with Christ. They are meant to support our relationship with Christ. The great philosopher who's been very influential in my life, my wife, <laughs> Bethany and I were discussing this concept about six weeks ago. And she rightly said that the measure of whether or not our human relationships support or supplant our relationship with Christ is determined by one question. If a particular relationship was removed, would I survive? Would I continue to thrive? This is a concept we see in our text this morning. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4. And I want to continue the series on precepts for Christian relationships. And today I want to bring to you a message I've entitled precept number four. The connection in Christ determines the quality of the relationship. Please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 4, and we will once again begin in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, for those, and for those in Laodicea and in Heriopolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you may have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You may be seated. 
There was a young man who was about to graduate from high school. He came from a very wealthy family. He lived in a very wealthy neighborhood, and the high school that he attended was also populated by other wealthy people. The tradition upon graduation within this group of people is that the parents would gift a car to their children or to the graduate. And so in preparation, father and son spent weeks looking at cars, and they did eventually find one that the son really liked. On graduation day, the father handed the son a nicely gift-wrapped box, and the son was quietly surprised by this. And he opened it, and what he found was a Bible. At first, the son was surprised, and then he became angry. He began yelling at his father for not being willing to spend some of his money for the son's car, and the son stormed off. Years later, his father would die, and and they had not talked in that time. And so he returned home to sort through all of the matters at hand, and he came across the Bible once again. And taking it in his hand, he opened it up, to find that his father had highlighted a particular verse. And then in the Bible, there was either a check for the full amount of the car or there was a note showing that the car had been bought. The story has been adapted through the years, so I don't remember which or don't know which, but the point was that the car had actually been paid for. This is how many people treat relationships, just like the son did with his father. They are conditional, in which we often say, as long as you do something for me, then I will endeavor to love you. When that is the thrust of our relationships, though, we miss both the beauty of God's given relationships and his gifting of them, and we fail to enjoy them to their fullest potential. Two weeks ago, when we were looking upon Aristarchus and John Mark and and Justice, We talked about the risk of relationships, that each relationship comes with a risk. It's a risk of our time, a risk of our affection, and a risk of ourselves, our entire being. Though we may invest ourselves in another person, we may never see any return on that investment. The reality is, at some point, our relationships will hit a difficult point. That's just a basic truth because we're all tainted by sin. And so at some point, our relationships are going to have those tough moments. Sometimes it's just an unintentional miscommunication. Sadly, sometimes it's intentional maliciousness. But regardless of the case, we will hit those tough moments. And the reality is this. If our hope is in that relationship, then our hope will fail us. There comes a point then when our relationships need to be sanctified. They need to be made holy. The Lord makes much of sanctification, calling upon those who would call him holy to be holy themselves. But when the Lord calls for our lives to be transformed, made holy for his purpose, this was an all-encompassing call. (coughs) The work of the Lord is to take every aspect of our lives, captive for himself. The call of himself is for total transformation, and included in that is our relationships. These relationships we have are a gift from him, a gift from the Lord meant for our good and for his glory. 
and thus they are meant to be sanctified. This morning we will look at Paul's relationship with two individuals and that see how those capture the differences between a sanctified relationship and an unsanctified one. What we see is a difference in the quality of relationship as a result. And so to consider the idea that the quality of our relationships is determined by our connection in Christ, I want us to look at the first part of verse 14 in our text. Colossians 4, verse 14, and in just that first part, it says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. The simplicity of that text probably leaves many of us underwhelmed. I wouldn't fault you if you're already asking, what more is there to say? It's pretty obvious what this text means. I'd ask you or plead with you to not underestimate my ability to take two words and turn it into 20. Because I'm sure if anybody has a capacity to do so, it is me. I joke, but there are some truths here. Some truths that become important that when we examine this text in light of other verses in Scripture and look upon them, we, we see this relationship between Luke and Paul and understand what that means and the example it gives for human relationships. And so as a result, I want you to note first what I'm going to call the law of Luke. The law of Luke. In the relationship between Paul and Luke, what we learn is that relationships are strongest when they are secured in Christ. Luke contributes much to Christian, Christian history. We see this just with his Gospel of Luke that he has written. But it is his writing of the book of Acts that I've come to appreciate more. Because the book of Acts gives us a piece of Christian history that we would otherwise not have. If we did not have Acts, how much would be lost in our own understanding of the early church? If we didn't have Acts, how much would we know about the travels of Paul? And if we did not have the book of Acts, how much would we lack in our theology of, of church itself, ecclesiology, but even things like baptism and the coming of the Holy Spirit? And yet, despite his contribution, Luke's contribution, the limited information we have about Luke really just comes from a couple of sources. Dating back somewhere between the 2nd and 4th century A.D. are manuscripts of the Gospels of Mark and Luke and John. And each one of those Gospels contains a prologue, an introduction, much like some of our Bibles do today where they just outline some of the background and who the author is and the dates. These particular prologues, though, are called the anti-Marcionite prologues. And the one that precedes Luke describes Luke this way. Luke was an Antiochian, Antiochian of Syria, a physician by profession. He was a disciple of the apostles and later accompanied Paul until his martyrdom. He served the Lord without distraction, having neither wife nor children. And at the age of 84, he fell asleep in Boeotia, full of the Holy Spirit. That's about as much history as we have of Luke. Within scripture, Luke is only mentioned three times. As the author of Acts, though, we are able to ascertain or determine a little bit more about him. And we begin to learn that Luke joined Paul kind of at the beginning of his second missionary journey. 
the little text here in Colossians, this half verse that I read to you from verse 14, actually becomes very critical to our understanding of who Luke is. Because despite how few words there are here, this is the only place in Scripture where we learn two things about Luke. First, we learn that he is a physician, and it says that very plainly there. The second thing we learn is that he's a Gentile. And we know that because earlier, in verses 10 and 11, Paul identifies three men, Aristarchus, Jesus, who is called Justice, and John Mark. And he says in verse 11, these are the only three that are the Jews that join me. And so by elimination, we know that Luke must be a Gentile. In sending his personal greetings, it appears that Luke seems to be known to the group of people here in this region. And there's probably a reason for that. As a doctor, Luke was very low in society, but he was still educated. Laodicea was not only a place for training physicians, but it was also the source of a number of healing cults during the day. It's asked by many then that perhaps Luke trained there, and maybe he even participated in some of those cults before he had been reached with the gospel in that region. Whatever the case may be, it is clear that Luke has now entrusted his life to Christ, and he's become a useful servant for the Lord by serving alongside Paul. And so as we look upon these characteristics of their relationship, there are three qualities that begin to emerge between Paul and Luke. And first, what we see is that Christian relationships are characterized by love. Depending on the English Bible version you have, the text here calls Luke either beloved or dearly loved. This is not just a term of endearment or affection or emotion for someone. This term is an expression of one's position in Christ. Paul uses the same term just a few verses earlier. He's referring to Onesimus, and he refers to him as a faithful and beloved brother. In pleading with Philemon to accept Onesimus back, he writes in Philemon 15 and 16, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Onesimus here is not loved for who he was. The reality is, is he's actually loved in spite of who he is. We know Onesimus to have broken the law by running away from Philemon. He has caused financial harm to his, his master. And some believe that there's even evidence that he's a thief. If the condition of a loving Onesimus was dependent upon who he was, then he would be considered unlovable. But notice again, Onesimus is beloved. But he's beloved here because he was loved by God. Anytime that term beloved is used in scripture, it comes with this idea that it's identifying somebody as loved by God. Paul's not just saying, I love him. Paul is saying, Luke is loved by the Lord. The implication is that because he's loved by God, then he's also loved by others. And we see that truth exemplified in the letter to Philemon as well. Because at Paul's urging, he calls upon Philemon to both receive and love Onesimus. 
because God has already received and loved Onesimus. We can make the assumption then that that falls true for Luke, that because he is loved by God, he is loved by others. He seems to be loved by Paul here, but seems to also be loved by those that are around him. That transforms our human concept of love. We are inundated with the teaching that love is a subjective emotion, but really what we see is the opposite. We're taught that love is subjective, that my ability to love you and your ability to love me is completely dependent upon our ability to please one another. And as long as we are pleased, then love defines our relationship. But what happens when we fail to meet each other's expectations? And that will happen. I just said that earlier when we talked about sin being part of who we are. Does that love cease? According to Christ's own command, absolutely not. The notion of beloved in our text then transforms our love from a subjective emotion to an objective truth. So that love isn't dependent upon who a person is or what a person does, because that can change over time. Instead, it is dependent upon who that person is in Christ. And that never changes. Once saved, always saved. And so our fellow believers may fail us, and we may fail them. But we can love anyway, not because of what they do, but because of who they are in Christ. Notice that Paul doesn't give any reason about why Luke is loved. It's just assumed with beloved, he's loved by God. He doesn't need to give a reason. If Luke is loved by God, that should be sufficient reason for anybody else to love him. And so Christian relationships are characterized by love. Second, I would say in addition to love, they are characterized by loyalty. This morning we read from Acts chapter 16 in our scripture reading. And it is in that text that Paul receives his call for his second missionary journey to head towards Macedonia. And then in verse 10 we read this. And when Paul had seen this vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Who's we? From the previous verse, we know this includes Paul and Silas and Timothy. But they're not the ones writing this text, so there's got to be somebody else for this to be a we. And we know that to be Luke. This is a critical text in the book of Luke because this is the first time that word we is used. It's the first time that we see Luke then joining Paul beginning on that second missionary journey, somewhere around A.D. 50. If we fast forward roughly 15 years later, Paul is beginning to prepare for his own death. And in one of his final writings, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. And then he says this in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me. For some time between 15 to 18 years now, we see Luke has been there at Paul's side. 
He is with Paul at his first imprisonment in Colossians, and he is with Paul in his second imprisonment years later. This is quite the contrast compared to the disciples who, upon Christ's arrest at the Garden of Gethsemane, individually they, they begin to desert Christ. But here, Luke remains loyal. Even in difficult circumstances, he's right there. And I can only say that the difference between Luke and the disciples is that's the difference of the Holy Spirit. While the disciples were alarmed and anxious, the Holy Spirit who comes later alleviates any spirit of fear. And so what we have now is Luke who is faithful, committed to endure with Paul because he's committed to endure for Christ. That's the unique aspect that I've shared before about Christian relationships. When things get hard, we can expect the world to desert one another. But believers don't have that option. Our loyalty in Christ determines our loyalty to one another. Third, consider that relationships are characterized by labor. Christians labor for Christ together. There's really no need to dwell on this point because it wasn't that long ago that we already established it when we first talked about Paul's relationship with Tychicus in verse 7, where we noted that because believers are connected in Christ, they serve together for Christ. And you can always go back and listen to that message at the end of January. But it is worth noting a couple of quick aspects here. Luke is referred to as a physician. And there are at least a couple of commentators who will say that Luke was Paul's personal physician. I don't know that there's enough evidence to make that claim. But I also think it's highly unlikely that Paul would have somebody in his ministry team that's devoted to his own well-being. I just don't see that in Paul's character. What seems more probable to me is the idea that Luke's primary role with Paul is in ministry. But like Paul, he has a skill set. And no doubt he's going to use that skill set to serve Paul and serve anybody else and probably serve even unbelievers along the way. All for the sake of Christ. When shipwrecked on Malta, no doubt Luke would be able to use his skills to help anybody that might have been injured. When we look at Acts 16.22 and see this beating that takes place, certainly Luke can attend to any of the wounds. That's how the body of Christ functions, though. We see that in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12. Each person having a skill or a gift imparted by God uses it for the glory of God and the good of one another, by laboring together. And so Christian relationships are characterized by love and loyalty and labor. What you should notice about each of those characteristics is they define Christ's relationship with us. With his followers, Christ demonstrates a love to them, a loyalty to them, and a labor for them. Though he shows this in a variety of ways, most notably, we see it at the cross. At his death on the cross, Scripture describes it as the greatest act of love we would ever see. Christ displays great loyalty through that, unwilling to turn his back to save himself. And so he endures this great suffering and anguish, and without a doubt is the most tremendous labor on our behalf that we've ever seen. And that's what we see here in that law of Luke. 
Joining Luke and sending greetings is Demas. His name is simply just a contraction of the name Demetrius. And he is mentioned only three times in scripture. So we really have very little information on him as well. And yet his example has some important implications about those who profess to follow Christ. And so what I want you to see here in contrast to the law of Luke is what I would call the diagram of Demas. The diagram of Demas. What we saw before is that relationships are strengthened when they are secured in Christ. What we're going to see now is that relationships are weakened when they are weak in Christ. In our text here, in Philemon 24, Demas simply just sends greetings to the churches in Asia Minor. But it's a later text that actually reveals much more about who Demas is, and truthfully, the image is not a pleasant one. We've already spent much time in the passage that I want to look at, because it's the same moment in 2 Timothy when Paul is writing again of his impending death. We read earlier that only Luke remained in 2 Timothy 4.11. But if we back up a few verses, beginning in verse 9, we read this. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. It's interesting that there are only three places in Scripture where Demas is mentioned, and they happen to be the same three places where Luke is also mentioned by name. And yet the two stand in great contrast with one another. One is a great crusader for Christ, and the other is a great defector from Christ. One of those is notable for his dependability, and the other is known for his desertion. The defection of Demas teaches us something about people who profess Christ. They will either detach themselves from the culture now in order to attach themselves to Christ in eternity, or they will attach themselves to the culture now and detach themselves from Christ in eternity. The sad reality is that there are some who will cry out, Lord, Lord, and Jesus Christ has nothing else to say and can say nothing else except depart from me. I never knew you because I've never fully surrendered to him. They're like the seed that fell on the rocky ground or among the thorns in Matthew 13, where they showed growth for a time, but then eventually they were scorched or they were withered away when their faith was pressed. While the law of Luke then presents three characteristics of a relationship where Christ is present. What we see in this diagram of Demas is three characteristics of a relationship without Christ. The most obvious characteristic is desertion. This is completely opposite again of the example that we get from Luke. Remember that Luke endured with Paul for 15 years and specifically recall that the ending of Colossians and the ending of 2 Timothy really spanned about three to five years. In that time, Luke remains, but Demas disappears. Some have noted that in our text in Colossians, there's a lack of description about who Demas is. While mentioning all these other people, most everybody except Justice, Paul shares some sort of detail. 
Tychicus is a faithful minister. Onesimus is a beloved brother. Mark is a cousin of Barnabas. And Epaphras is a slave of Christ. So we wonder, did Paul already see some warning sign? And was he already concerned? Because rarely is a defection from Christ and from the fellowship of the body of Christ without some sort of warning sign. There are often warning signs, and those warning signs demand a response of loving accountability and discipleship. But this points something else. In Luke, we saw the relationship between genuine believers, and we see that those relationships are characterized by loyalty to the point that when things got excruciatingly difficult, believers continue to walk alongside one another. But where the relationship is not secured by Christ, we can expect a worldly response, which basically says that when things are difficult, I can leave you. I can turn away because that's not good for me. That's what we see here. More concerned with the culture than Christ, Demas leaves the followers of Christ to be with the followers of the culture. And so we see desertion. But desertion leads to something else, disappointment. Upon reading what Paul writes about in Demas and 2 Timothy, we can almost hear disappointment in Paul's tone. Demas has gone into the world. He has deserted me. That's my paraphrase. In ancient writing, the order of the text was crucial because it implied importance. So look at the order of the text in verse 10. Basically, it's he is in love with the world and deserted me. Most crucial for Paul is that Demas has loved the world. The greatest disappointment for Paul is not his personal loss of a coworker, as difficult as I'm sure that is. The greatest disappointment for Paul appears to be that Demas has lost Christ. That's what Christ-like love will do in your life. It will cause you to love others so much that if they walk away from Christ in his body, meaning the church, your greatest disappointment is not your loss of a relationship with that deserter. Again, as difficult as it may be, your greatest disappointment is going to be their loss of a relationship with Christ. And with that said, I want you to see the one final characteristic. Devotion. In light of those other descriptions here, desertion and disappointment, devotion is probably not the next characteristic we would expect to see. But you should notice two things about what we read. First, it says Demas sends his greetings, even still in our text in Colossians. If there were concerns, if Paul wasn't sure really about his spiritual health, he has not sidelined Demas. And Paul doesn't even make special mention about Demas's condition, which we will see he does with Archippus next week, just a few verses later. But the other aspect is to realize that in the text to Timothy, he says, Demas deserted me. He doesn't say Demas was going the way of the world, and so I thought it wise to leave him. Although some circumstances that may be wise. He says, Demas left me. The point is this, it, it seems that despite Demas' defection, Paul remains devoted to his discipleship and continues until Demas is the one that makes the decision for desertion. 
I recognize that's a bit of conjecture. I don't know fully, and I'm simply trying to interpret some of the context of the text. But you would notice that same principle between Jesus and Judas. As long as Judas is there, Jesus still continues to teach. And Jesus does it with complete knowledge of Judas's heart, whereas Paul has limited knowledge. And so this begins to bring forth something very, very important. Sometimes our relationship with others is not only determined by their condition in Christ, our relationship with others is determined by our condition in Christ. If I love Christ, my priority will be to make disciples of Christ. And if I love others, my priority will be to see them become those disciples. Sometimes they will walk away. But here's the thing. We talked earlier, I mentioned earlier, the idea of relationships being conditional and I would say that indeed, Christian relationships are conditional, but we have to correctly define what those conditions are. If the condition for our relationships is for people to meet one another's expectations, as we see in the world, if somebody defects, there's no hope for restoration. In the case of Demas, if he ever came back, Paul could simply say, you didn't meet my expectations. You didn't do what I asked the first time, and so no, I'm not going to work with you. I'm not going to commit any more of my time to you. Do you think Paul would say that? Absolutely not. How do we know that? Because two weeks ago, we just looked at Paul's relationship with John Mark, who also deserted Paul. And in the same verse as 2 Timothy 4.11, where it says Luke remains with me, he calls upon the people to bring, Timothy specifically, to bring John Mark. He's going to openly receive John Mark. And I would say the reason for this is because the relationships are conditional. But the condition is not who they are to one another. The condition is who Paul is in Christ. Because of who Christ is in his own life, I expect that if Demas returned, Paul would look forward to repentance and restoration. And that's how it should be for all of us. And that's what I mean by relationships being conditional. Our relationships with others, with whether believer or unbelievers, not determined by whether or not I meet their expectations or they meet my expectations. Our relationship with others is determined by what Christ expects of us. And so our relationship with Christ determines our relationship with others. The diagram of Demas here is an example of our relationship with others. There will be times where it is characterized by desertion and disappointment. But because of who we are in Christ, we remain committed or devoted to them. I'll clarify that that doesn't sometimes come without consequence. If someone steals from you, you're not going to allow them back into your home without some supervision. There are consequences for sin. You'll want to see some evidence for change and progress before you ever got to that point. The same would probably be true here. If Demas comes back, Paul would probably have some regulations in place of how that looks. But he would still be devoted to discipleship and service with him. If we take the time, Scripture outlines all kinds of wise principles for our relationships. 
But what we need to see here is that though someone may abandon us or they may abandon Christ, we don't have the right to abandon them because we're followers of Christ. There's a lot to take in there in those examples of Luke and Demas. And it really all points to the reality that Christ and that connection in Christ determines the quality of our relationships. And so I want to just bring this together to, to summarize and simplify everything that we've just gone through. And, and it really comes down to two points. First, I would say the character of the relationship is determined by their condition in Christ. With fellow believers, there exists a love, a loyalty, and a labor that cannot exist with unbelievers. United in Christ, we are united both in position and in purpose so that there is more meaning and more significance to those relationships with believers. Does that mean we don't love unbelievers? Does that mean we don't labor for them? Absolutely not. But it does change the quality of our relationship because the relationship we have with fellow believers is focused on sanctification while the focus of our relationship with unbelievers is focused on salvation. And there is a difference. With believers, we love and labor for their sanctification, meaning that all is done to direct both them and us towards God and towards holiness. Sometimes that comes in the form of confronting sin. Sometimes that comes in the form of just carrying one another's burdens. And at other times, it's the form of just comfort and conversation through encouragement and teaching. That requires a level of closeness and a connection in Christ that we don't have with unbelievers. And so with unbelievers, when we love them and we're loyal to them and labor for them, we do so for the purposes of seeing them saved through Christ. This is what that means. When I look at the character, the relationship is determined by their condition in Christ. The second point, I would say this. The character of our relationship is determined by our condition in Christ. If I profess to be a follower of Christ, then my relationship should reflect Christ. As much as it depends upon me. Like Demas, some will defect. That leads to disappointment, but it doesn't change our devotion as Christ pursued us, we pursue them. You should notice something in common between these two points. Our relationships don't define Christ. Christ defines our relationship, and that's what we're getting at. Relationships are critical, and they're necessary, and they're essential because they are an institution designed by God and imparted by God to disciple his people and declare his glory. And that's the difference, though, between sanctified and unsanctified. When you divorce relationships from Christ, making them unsanctified, they become human-oriented. The relationship becomes about us and what we want. And when we don't get what we want, what happens? We get angry. We get sad. Insert whatever emotion you want. But if the relationship is sanctified, and finding its purpose in God. It doesn't matter what we get from the relationship. All that matters is what God gets from that relationship. The example of desertion serves us well when we think about our focus. If our focus, if that is our focus, that God 
gets much out of the relationship. We can always be pleased knowing that whatever happens, it was according to his permissive will. We can always be content that he is using that for his glory and our good and the good of the other person. And again, desertion serves us well. In an unsanctified, human-oriented relationship, if someone deserts us, we take that personally. Something, sometimes we become very offended by that. We may even allow animosity to build. But in a God-oriented, sanctified relationship, if that desertion occurs, there's no need for all the emotions. Because of regardless of my position with that person, my position with Christ is still the exact same. We can lament the loss of a relationship. We may repent and seek forgiveness if we contributed to that loss. And we continue to pray for their return and their restoration, not to us, but to God, most importantly. But we don't need to be overwhelmed by any of the the emotions that might come with that. Nicholas Ellen once shared, you enjoy your relationships, you endure your relationships, but you live for Christ. Having been made holy by Christ, our relationships are to be made holy by Christ also. So what you should see here in this series of precepts for Christian relationships is that the Lord has instituted human relationships as a means to cultivate his ongoing work in his people's lives. But our human relationships should never supplant our divine relationship with Christ. Our human relationships with others should always support our divine relationship with Christ. And so let us capture our relationships with the grace of God, that they may display the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed you have given us the gift of relationships. Father, you are a great God who has given us many things. You're a great giver, and and we see that in the gift of relationships. First and foremost, by giving us a relationship with yourself. But second, by giving us a relationship with one another. And so, Father, we pray as we leave today, Lord, help us to use those relationships for the good of others and the glory of you, Lord. May we see them be sanctified, directed towards holiness, captivated by your grace, so that we may see our relationships lived out in that grace. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.